Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us on Banter today is Elizabeth Bra, who's a resident fellow with us at AEI, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges, including hybrid and gray zone threats. She's also a columnist with Foreign Policy and a member of the United Kingdom's National Preparedness Commission. Her work is often published in a range of publications, including The Economist, Foreign Affairs, and The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining Banter, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me. So to start out, you're relatively new to AEI. So Robert and I wanted to just ask you to kind of give us a little story of how you came to the U.S., how you came to AEI. Well, I could start many years ago when I first came to, to Washington as an intern. I was going to university in Germany and I sort of thought if, I, if I'm going to focus on international relations, I really should know something about Washington. So I came as an intern. But more recently, I've returned to Washington to work at AEI and I'm thrilled to be at AEI. And the work I do, as, as, as you mentioned, focuses on new national security threats. And those national security threats target our civil society, our way of life. And I think that makes it highly relevant to AEI's mission, which is really about defending liberal democracy and open society, not just defending it, but helping it thrive. And the question I am trying to answer at AEI is, what does it mean for our free and open societies, our liberal democracies, when our adversaries take advantage of that openness to weaken our societies that involves attacking pipelines, whether it involves interfering with our elections, whether it involves targeting meat processing plants. This is where so much action is happening simply because we are so open. And it's it's a fundamental question for our societies, especially an enormously free and open one such as the United States. What do we do about it? Because clearly constant undermining, constant attacks, constant assaults on our way of life, that's going to, at some point, cause our way of life to, I'm not going to say it will collapse or crumble, but that sort of aggression and harm imposed on it will cause it to deteriorate. And nobody wants that. So let's get a little more specific about the the gray zone attacks or the, the alternative or new ways of attacking liberal democracies like the United States. So what's a specific example of an attack? And, and we've had some recently. And just give us the what, and then I'll ask you about who and why they're doing it. And then, then we'll get to what do we do about it. But let's get, the, let's get the basics down first. What specifically happens when we are the victim of one of these attacks? So it can range from, we should remember, it's not just one-off attacks. It's, it's constant aggression or constant weakening of our society. So it can range from permanent or constant theft of intellectual property, which weakens the companies involved because the main asset that any company, especially in an increasingly high-tech environment has, that main asset any company has is their intellectual property. If that intellectual property is stolen by a competitor that hasn't invested in, in, in all the R&D that's needed to develop the intellectual property, then that company is in dire straits. And that's been happening for a number of years. Now, it's becoming increasingly concerning because when you steal intellectual property from, from let's say, a shoe company, it's not particularly sophisticated IP that, that you can steal. If you steal intellectual property from, from a telecoms 
company, you know, equipment manufacturer in the telecoms industry, then that equipment is, is a lot more sophisticated than we have seen it, for example, with T-Mobile. And this actually resulted in, in an indictment by, by the U.S. Department of Justice. T-Mobile has a lab in, in the United States where they develop all kinds of sophisticated products. Well, Huawei, which is, as we all know, a well-known Chinese company, wanted something robot that T-Mobile had. It couldn't develop one itself, but the robot that Huawei had wasn't very good. It then proceeded to, to just steal the IP for T-Mobile's robot. So, and so we have a so we got like stealing of intellectual property, but what, what's a hack? What, what is that? How does that happen? This business has been yeah, in the newspaper so, lately. That's not yeah. stealing intellectual property. That's actually, that's a more aggressive action. What, what is that? What is actually happening there? Yeah, so the aggression can range all the way from this sort of latent effects of IP all the way to hacks. And then hacks are sort of a loose collective term for cyber aggression. So cyber aggression can either be destruction or espionage. Now, espionage is one thing. Destruction is what we should focus on. And so the hack, for example, that we saw with Colonial Pipeline was perpetrated by a Russian hacker group, a criminal gang, and not by the Russian government. That, that has to be said up front. It wasn't the Russian government, but the Russian criminal group that attacked Colonial Pipeline and essentially froze it part of its operation and said, as, as is the case with such attacks in this category, which is they're called ransomware attacks, which is the aggressor attacks the target and freezes their, the target's systems and then says, we'll unfreeze your systems. We'll, we'll give you the key to unlock if you pay us this amount of money. And, 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 and uh, is, this, so, is this a single individual sitting at a terminal or computer terminal in Russia who is able all by themselves to manipulate their way through the systems into a company like Colonial Pipeline and shut it down? Or is it a, does, it take, no. does it take a big group? Or is it, can one person do it all by themselves? It's extremely unlikely that it's one person. There is this sort of myth of, of you know, the teenager sitting on his parents' sofa in the basement and attacking critical national infrastructure. That's extremely unlikely. In most cases, it's a group of highly sophisticated criminals and by the way, that group can also involve a rogue government official who may be moonlighting for, for this criminal group. So it's not just any old teenager or any young teenager, I should say. It is a sophisticated group of, of criminals because today, companies in the West and all over the industrialized world, they know about cyber aggression. They, they protect themselves. So in order to be successful in your attack in your aggression against such a company. You have to be very sophisticated. And that's what happened to Colonial Pipeline. Colonial Pipeline initially didn't pay the ransom. But what happened was that in the meantime, people panicked and said, oh, Colonial Pipeline has been shut down. I'd better buy gasoline. And so as we all saw during that week after the, the attack, Americans all over the, the East Coast drove to the nearest gas station and filled up on, on gasoline, which then made the attack even worse because the panic buying really resulted in that being no gas left for those who really needed it. And so that is the reality today. I think it's so important to remember that, yes, wars can still happen, but attacks like these can really bring daily life to a standstill, even in America, which is so far away from traditional war. So that is the reality today. And then 
after the colonial pipeline attack, which in the end, colonial pipeline paid the ransom more than $4 million. After that, we saw a similar attack on, on JBS, the meat processing company, which resulted in, in some Americans not being able to buy meat. Right. So, okay. So that's, those are two examples, the, the attacks on people's computer systems, shutting them down. And the first one you mentioned, but is this type of warfare also this political manipulation, this the use of Facebook and Google and social media to manipulate political discussion? Is that also a form of this gray zone warfare? Yes, it is. So if we think about the, the gray zone between war and peace, it is whatever the, the perpetrator or attacker can use, whichever means or, or tools they come up with. So it, it's phenomenally attractive to attackers because you can say, oh, I want to influence a country's elections and I may not be successful in influencing the elections, but I will sow the seed of doubt among the, the voters in that country regarding the validity of their elections. And that's what makes it so powerful. You don't actually need to shift the outcome of any vote, but you will sow the seed of doubt about the validity of the elections and as a result, the validity of the democratic system. And we have seen in various polls in, in the US and in the UK that people, a near majority in both the US and the, in the UK, at various points, for example, after the, the 2016 election in the US, after the Brexit referendum in the UK, after the Scottish independence referendum in 2014, people think Russia meddled with, with those elections. And it almost doesn't matter whether Russia meddled because people are convinced Russia did. Well, well let, now let's get to the who. Okay, so who, who's doing this? Who, who are these evildoers? Well, one actor is Russia, that's clear, and we saw it with the 2016 U.S. election, and the subsequent Senate investigation did establish that Russia had meddled with that election. Now, it didn't establish the effect of Russian meddling, but it did establish that Russia had meddled. But I think that the country we really need to worry about for the future is China, because the gray zone involves much more than cyber attacks and election meddling. It involves what, what I call subversive economics, which is when one country, through its companies operating internationally, can weaken other countries' economies. And that's what's happening, increasingly happening, and not just through IP theft, which has been going on for some time, but also through acquisitions of promising companies in our countries, in our Western countries, including the U.S. Acquisitions and early funding where you get access to really the best secrets, the best in the most innovative ideas we have. And that's something I'm really concerned about. So we have two state players. You said very clearly these are not rogue terrorists who are stateless, Russia and China. And so why? Why are they doing it? Why, why have they decided to attack the United States in this way? First of all, I should say it's not just Russia and China. They are the main players at the moment. North Korea is also very active, but not so much against the U.S. Its hackers steal money from wherever they can find money to fund the North Korean nuclear program. Then we have Iran, but again, it's not as, as active vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. as China and Russia. Why are they doing it? Simply because the opportunity is there. We are so vulnerable in this gray zone between war and peace because we haven't had to worry about aggression other than war in the past. And I think in particular, a country such as the US and, and the UK, where the armed forces are extremely good, 
in those countries there has been this almost veneration of the armed forces, almost a naive belief in the armed forces' ability to stave off any national security threat that may target the country. And people almost forgot that, that national security threats don't, or forms of aggression don't always involve armed forces. And that is the, the dilemma for the U.S. today, that yes, the armed forces are extremely good, but, but they can only stave off or tackle threats that are of a military nature. They can't do very much about IP theft or, or subversive economic practices or disinformation or cyber intrusion. They can do a bit about cyber intrusion, but they can't look after every single company every single day. Right. So where is an opportunity, it's a weak spot for us. So what should the United States do about it? That is the question that, that every country faces today, every liberal democracy faces today. The most important thing I would argue for the U.S. to do is to realize that the government alone is not the answer, simply because for the government to protect every aspect of life in civil society, would it would involve a government so big and so omnipresent that people, first of all, they wouldn't like it, and second of all, they wouldn't want to fund it. And thirdly, we as the civil society, we are a resource with massive potential in, in helping to keep the country safe because it's in everybody's interest that our way of life be maintained because nobody would, would okay, like it. But, but, but the, the so what do we do? Of, of, what, what does the individual do? What does the individual business do? Pay for better security apparatus to protect them against cybersecurity attacks? What If it, we don't all rely on government, what can the rest of us do? We can learn what to do in case of disruption. The reality is there will be disruption, whether that disruption be caused by cyber attacks or by economic subversion or by coercion, for example, of our companies by foreign governments. That's something that China does, for example. So we have to realize there will be disruption. And we as, as ordinary citizens should learn not to panic in case of disruption. We shouldn't all, for example, get on our phones when the network goes down, when the mobile network goes down and try to figure out what's wrong, because that will make the disruption even worse. We shouldn't all drive to the gas station in case of a hack on a gas pipeline. It sounds a little bit to me like you're saying we need to get used to it or realize this is going to happen and then deal with it without losing our composure. But that's not really a very satisfactory answer. Isn't a better answer that's something we can get, see, we can do to stop it from happening? Is there anything that non-governmental entities can do to prevent it from happening. I think you wrote a piece recently and said companies, one thing they should do is not pay the ransom. Isn't that something they can do as well? What else can we do? Yeah, so there are two pieces. One is the resilience of what you do once the harm has happened and what you do to limit that harm. Then the second part is what do you do to signal to the other side that it makes no sense for that side to attack you? because it won't have any effect, or because you will punish that side in return. So part of what you can do in the case of ransomware attacks is for companies to publicly say, and not just individual companies, but whole sectors to team up. Let's say all hospitals in the United States. What if they teamed up and said, if you attack us with your ransomware attacks, we won't pay. And that really requires a lot of coordination between these hospitals for-profit, non-profit hospitals. But if they did manage to team up, it would be incredibly powerful. The same thing for other sectors. But at the moment, 
each company thinks for themselves. And you have to remember each CEO is responsible to his or her shareholders. And he says, well, he or she says, well, I better pay because then we can get our operations back up relatively quickly. It would be so powerful if companies teamed up within their sectors and said, we're not going to pay. So that's one thing. Then the other thing that can be done, and this involves the government, is the government can communicate, publicly communicate, that in case of an attack or of of aggression that can be attributed to a foreign government, linked to a foreign government, that the home government, in this case, the US government, will avenge that aggression, not through illegal means, but by using legal means. For example, by turning off the, the flow of money that comes out of certain authoritarian countries, wealthy people in those countries, that money goes from those countries into bank accounts in our countries here in the West. The US government, the UK government, and so forth could signal they're not going to get access to that money if, if your government continues to sponsor or to condone aggression in the gray zone. So President Biden was in Europe recently and met with Putin. And this, I think, came up. I think there was some report that President Biden made it clear that this wasn't going to be tolerated. Is that an effective way to to address it, dealing it state power to state power? Yes. So what Biden said was that he proposed that certain areas of critical national infrastructure be banned or that both sides should agree not to target those areas in the other country. And I I think that makes a lot of sense. So if both sides agree, we're not going to attack groups operating from our countries, won't attack your water provision, energy provision, and so forth. I I think that makes sense because it it, it is actually extremely dangerous to a country if water goes out, if power goes out, and so forth. Putin hasn't responded, but I think that's a really constructive proposal. Cyber attacks won't end, but if you can keep your critical national infrastructure safe, then then at least you have some modicum of continued provision of critical services in your country. The one Uh, thing about that, though, I did see there was a little bit of criticism where people said, oh, but it's okay to do the other things. I mean, shouldn't Russia help us (laughs) prevent this from happening in any in any form? That is the tricky part. What we really need is, is arms control in cyberspace. We had it. During the Cold War, we had arms control with nuclear weapons. But the problem is that nuclear weapons are, everybody knows that they are so phenomenally dangerous that it is, it's in everybody's interest to negotiate with the other side about reducing or at least limiting the number of, of nuclear warheads and missiles. But with cyber aggression, it's not so immediately obvious to everybody that it is exceptionally dangerous. In fact, you could say a little bit of cyber aggression is not that dangerous. So there's no, there is no immediate pressure on both sides or indeed on any side to create arms control in cyberspace. And there have been countless efforts and non-binding agreements and so forth. And academics have put forth rule books for, for cyberspace. None of that has, has made any difference, unfortunately. Can the United States... Are there governmental entities at the CIA or the United States Department of Defense or somewhere that could wage cyber war on Russia if if we decided that that was a way to deter them from waging it on us? Yes, there are cyber operatives in a number of U.S. government agencies, both civilian and military, with the expertise to, for example, attack 
Russian power stations. Now, if the US were to do that, it would obviously harm Russia greatly, but it would also cause Russia to avenge that aggression. So it, it wouldn't be in America's interest. Clearly, it, as a short-term answer, yes, it would be a good answer, but it, it would lead to escalation, which is what makes this so dangerous. So my take has always been that you need to, we as the West, should avenge gray zone aggression in, in ways that don't make the other side lose face. Because if the other side loses face, then that side, whether it be Russia, China or any other country, will hit back and will we'll be stuck in this escalation, which would be really dangerous. So speaking about losing face and this great power rivalry, let's shift a little bit from the methods of war or the methods of competition to the competitors themselves. And I guess what I want to ask is, did you feel that President Biden's recent trip to Europe was a sign of progress in that he appeared to get the EU countries to be more unified with the United States in counteracting China and Russia? Yes, although it has to be said, the bar was set very low simply because European countries have been so annoyed by President Trump. There has just been so little trust during the past four years. So Biden, even if he turned up and said nothing, I, I think it would have been deemed a success. But the point is this, the more disharmony we display within our countries on one hand and within our Western alliance on the other hand, the more opportunities we offer to the other side to exploit those gaps and that disharmony. And that's exactly what, what both Russia and China have been doing. Russia, for example, through election meddling in the US, exploiting the unhappiness among some groups with the existing political climate and China trying to pick off European countries to get them to side with China against the United States. So just showing that, putting that joint face, even if it's not a very strongly united face, but just putting that forward and, and, and saying we are, yes, we have our disagreements, but on the fundamental issues, we do agree and, and we are friends and allies. I think that's really important. And from right. that perspective... So it, uh, I, I take your point entirely that the bar was low and that he just had to show up and be nice and he was going to get them to be more supportive of the United States. But is the animosity or anger or, or resistance or opposition to China and Russia as intensely felt in European nations and the UK as it is in the United States? Well, Robert, I'm, I'm so pleased you said European countries and not Europe, because people both in major European capitals and in, in the US often make the mistake of saying Europe as if it's some sort of single entity. It's not, depending on what you're talking about, it's either a continent or if you're talking about the European Union, it's 27 countries, or you can talk about NATO, which has European members as well as the US and Canada. It's not one, one entity. And I think if, if we analysts talk about Europe as being an entity, we'll always be disappointed because the world looks completely different if you're based in Copenhagen compared to if you're based in, in Rome or if you're based in Tallinn. And we should remember that, that even if countries are small, there are domestic considerations for those governments and they can't just be, be whipped into 
agreements with larger countries, simply because larger countries are more powerful, they have their own extremely valid domestic considerations. And that's why people complain that, oh, Europe again did nothing. Actually, it's, it's a miracle that European countries agree. Okay, 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 okay. That's anything. a very, very, uh, thank you for complimenting me for the right terminology. And I really appreciate that. But let's just, so tell me, who's the softest on Russia and who's the hardest on Russia? And same with China in Europe. The softest on Russia and China is Hungary, specifically Viktor Orban, who is the longtime prime minister of Hungary. Uh, some of, of your listeners may remember Viktor Orban from back in, in the late 80s when he was an extremely brave student leader, pro-democracy leader, back when it was dangerous to stand up against the communist regime. That person was Viktor Orban in Hungary. There were others in other countries. In Hungary, it was him. He has since, uh, he has been active in politics ever since. He's become a bit more authoritarian over the years. And now he has been in power for a long time. And he is of a conservative bent. And he resents other European capitals and the European Union, the European Commission, telling him that he is too conservative. And I think for that reason, he has begun flirting with Moscow and Beijing. So he is their friendliest point of contact in the European Union or in Europe, whichever definition you want to use. Then the most anti-Russia group within the European Union or in Europe is Clearly, the Baltic states and Poland, these countries have extremely valid reason to be concerned about Russia. The Baltic states were occupied by the Soviet Union, as we know, for four decades. Poland has been occupied, invaded over the, de- over the centuries by Russia, the Soviet Union, in various forms. Then, if we look at other countries, in, even though it's, it's not a member of the European Union or NATO, Serbia is very friendly to both China and Russia. Italy has been somewhat friendly to Russia and China. Then a country like Sweden is extremely opposed to China and and also very concerned about Russia. So it doesn't follow any real geographical logic. It's the the culture of the country and in some cases, of course, the history of the country. So again, maybe this is a not very deep or thoughtful way of thinking about it, but I'm going down this line and you've, you've raised this issue. So let's pursue it one step further. Ranking from softest to hardest, how do you rank Germany, France, and the UK? Germany, I think I would put in the middle. Germany always tries to be conciliatory, and as we know, it's a country that focuses a great deal on export, and its companies export a great deal to both Russia and China. Then France under Macron, and indeed previous administrations, has been remarkably friendly towards Russia. It sort of goes in waves, but that trend has prevailed. We should remember that that the previous French prime minister has recently joined the board of a major Russian company. Then the UK for a long time until recently was was had a long charm offensive towards China, but has cooled in in, in, in just the past couple of years and has also cooled towards Russia and is now quite firm towards both countries and has even decided not to go with Huawei in its 5G. So at the moment, France, the most conciliatory, Germany in the middle, the UK, the most independent-minded towards Russia and China. Now, again, because of your European background and experience, I stress that I'm interested in your take on this last question. And that is, 
President Biden and Boris Johnson announced a kind of restatement of the Atlantic Charter or a new Atlantic Charter, and, and they wanted to get some attention and press for that. I got the impression from AEI scholars, not you necessarily, because I'm not sure I read anything that you wrote about it, that there was a kind of, oh, this is just a PR. But was it only PR or was there something there in that? Well, the special relationship is really quite charming. So <laughs> it is very special to the UK. And it was interesting that the former UK, a former UK ambassador to Washington noted before by this meeting with, with Boris Johnson that he remembered when Obama had a similar meeting and or he was going to give a speech in the UK and, and some aide had scribbled in big black letters at the top of the speech had scribbled, mentioned the special relationship. And because that's, that's how strongly people in the UK feel about it. And of course, the reality is that it's a lot special to the US, but it, it, it nevertheless, it helps the US to have this loyal ally. And so from that perspective, it was valuable to reaffirm that relationship. But it's Today, it's the relationship doesn't really have a lot of concrete aspects to it. It's more sort of atmospheric and cultural, historical. But it was important because there had been a lot of concern in the UK that, that Biden, because he, his, he feels very strong about his Irish ancestry, and because Boris Johnson had been close to Trump, that that special relationship would be in trouble because the two the two of them wouldn't really hit it off. And so it was important from the UK's perspective. And I think as, as long as the US has a loyal ally, why not put a little extra bit of effort into it? And, and so everybody's happy. And even if, as in this case, it doesn't mean very much. I had one last question. We talked about kind of country by country and overall, which places are friendly or hostile to Russia and China. And it kind of seems like after the past year, if there was anything that could move everyone back to very hostile and wary of China, it would be everything we've seen throughout the pandemic. So I was just curious if you've seen anything in the summits this week or just in general that signal that we could, you know, take a more united approach across the U.S. and the European countries in responding to China moving forward. Well, the interesting thing, Phoebe, is how the global public opinion has shifted, or I should say Western public opinion and Western meaning, not the geographical West, but, but liberal democracies. That shift has been remarkable in the past year. In every single country, a liberal democracy, ranging from Australia to Canada, the, the public is increasingly, rapidly more concerned or more distrustful of China than has been the case in the past. And uh, the, thing, the thing about liberal democracies is that decision makers are guided by public opinion or by how the public feels about particular issues. So I think as a result of that, and as a result of, of decision makers in these countries, seeing for themselves that China is, is not transparent on vital issues, on critical issues, I think we'll see that we already saw it with the G7, with this really surprisingly strong statement with regards to China, mentioning the, the Uyghurs, for example. So we are seeing this trend already towards a more assertive stance towards China, even by countries that have, as we discussed just a minute ago, even by countries that have in the past had a pretty conciliatory approach. I'm convinced that we'll see some very significant developments in the near future because the public wants it and because Western decision makers have decided, have seen for themselves that China is not going to become a country just like us, at least not in the near future. 
So just circling back to the gray zone warfare question for one last question from me, and that is, you know, here at AI, we, we analyze the defense budget fairly closely and fairly carefully. Is there a piece in you to be written that says what we invest in defense department resources to counter cybersecurity is insufficient and should be significantly increased, or is that not correct? Well, we can always spend more on, on cybersecurity and, and on, indeed on, on any security. But I think what's needed more than a significant increase in federal budgets is a shift in mindset where people take these new forms of aggression seriously and realize that they can be directly affected. And I think that will, that will help us communicate, coming back to one of your earlier questions, Robert, what do we do about it and, and how do we convince the other side to stop? If the public realizes that it can be part of the solution, the collective within our societies, as represented by our government, can communicate to other countries that we form a united front in our countries. Don't bother with us because we know what to do. Now, I realize that that's far off, but it, it is within our power to do it because we all, every single one of us wants to maintain our very convenient way of life. So it's more important for us to sort of get our our mind around this correctly and react to it properly than to add another billion dollars to the Defense Department budget to counter it? Well, I wouldn't want to suggest that the Pentagon doesn't need another billion dollars because then people would hate me for saying that. But And so I haven't said that the Pentagon doesn't need another billion dollars, but that billion dollars could, I think, be put to much better use by informing the public, because actually involving the public is, is extremely cheap. It's about educating people, just like earthquake zones do, because there there's nothing really the armed forces can do to help you in case of an earthquake. So people have to, to figure out what to do themselves. And the city government helps you understand what you need to do. I think the same is possible with threats, with disruption, not caused by Mother Nature, but caused by other countries. So does the Pentagon have its additional $1 billion? And for a few hundred million dollars, we could get the population involved and equipped with the knowledge to know what to do if, if Colonial Pipeline goes down tomorrow, if they see some odd-looking information on Facebook, or if they see some peculiar interest in their research lab, in their company's R&D functions, whatever it may be. All of that can come together and we can communicate, we can signal to the other countries that we are all in this together and don't mess with us. With that, let's close it, our conversation to an end. Thank you very much, Elizabeth. This has been wonderful. I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.